Would you prefer a wedding where the preacher who sings Simon and Garfunkel songs <laughs> while holding an acoustic guitar instead of a Bible, or would you rather get married in a wedding with a chapel in kilts and the only music being from a bagpipe player doing high knee steps? Oh. <laughs> Try at, the, at this point, I'm trying to imagine just having a physical wedding at all. Uh, but if that's the case, I think I want the bagpipes. Frankie's going bagpipes. <laughs> what about you, Steve? Uh, I'm feeling a little. Ang- I think the I'll take the <laughs> I'll take the April come she will uh, on uh, on on acoustic. I very mellow. I think I could kind of relax to that. I <laughs> bagpipes might be a little a little too much for me. Fair enough. Yeah. All right, so we're here today. We are doing a special revival episode of Split Picks. It's been a while. So I'm Craig Wright. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Split Tooth Media, and I'm being joined today by filmmaker and film teacher uh, Steve Collins. Steve, how you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for uh, inviting us. Yeah, glad to have you. And we're also being joined by Frankie Venaria, who's another film scholar and teacher at Boston University. Frankie, how are you today? I'm good, guys. Uh, glad to be here with both of you. Yeah, it's, you know, weird days, so it's good to have something to look forward to. So, <laughs> All right, so Steve, you're a filmmaker, but sounds like during lockdown you've been writing about other people's films a lot. So I'm just curious what that's been like for you and what you've taken away from that. Well, yeah, I, I'm a filmmaker, so most usually in my spare time I'm, I'm writing scripts. Um, but I think the lockdown just encouraged me to... Uh, uh, do a little more writing on films I love because uh, I didn't have any immediate uh, plans to make something. Uh, and um, and one of the films I've been wanting to kind of write or teach or do something with for years is uh, Inside Lewin Davis, which was one of my favorite films of the last, I don't know, decade or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I think a film that didn't really get much... I don't know. It didn't seem to me. It was. It seemed to me it was a little undervalued, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, in their canon and uh, in the Coen Brothers canon, but also just in you know, it, it was not. Uh, it was one of their lowest, lower grossing uh, films, mm-hmm. uh, and so. Uh, but I've been enjoying writing on film uh, quite a lot. It's you know, I realize uh, it's. You know, being a filmmaker is very—it's uh, very hard to get money to get films going. It's a big pain in the <laughs> butt to get a crew. I mean, you know, get a crew together, get all that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. get locations, get lunch, uh, and it, it is uh, refreshing being able to get uh, the uh, more—not instant satisfaction, but I guess mm-hmm. a little more um, uh, kind of a relaxing process of watching and writing and rewriting. So I, I found it interesting as another sort of vehicle uh, mm. to I to express my love of uh, movies. Cool. Mm. And Frankie, you are finishing up your PhD, and you're also teaching some classes. What's been going to school during all this been like? Um. Awkward, Awkward, I would say, is the, <laughs> is the predominant emotion. Um, whether it's teaching over Zoom or teaching sort of half in the classroom, half over Zoom at the same time, mm-hmm. um, it's it's hard to sh- show movie clips that 
like technically all the students can access and uh, that they all have the same um, audio and everything is working for them. So it's a little bit challenging when we run into technical problems, but uh, you know, students are always very smart and they, they pick up on things. And yeah, like, like Steve said, writing is a very relaxing, almost a therapeutic way mm-hmm. to um, be living in the pandemic and be thinking about movies at the same time. And it's just been nice also to have students and kind of see how they process movies and kind of react to them. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we're here today because without knowledge of each other's work, you both turned in stories about the Coen brothers films in the same week, both dealing Mm -hmm. with films that are completely different from one another and for for good measure, you both referenced Double Indemnity. So, <laughs> <laughs> Frankie, you chose Intolerable Cruelty. Steve, you wrote mm. about Inside Lewin Davis. Mm. Obviously, we're going to dive into more detail, but briefly, I'm just curious what drew both of you to write about these films now. And Steve, why don't we start with you, because we'll go chronologically and do Intolerable Cruelty first. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I uh, like I said, I think it's a, a, a movie that uh, I don't think got quite enough love. And I think, I think for me particularly, uh, the, I think the reason I responded it, to it so deeply uh, is, well, I mean, one, it is about a struggling artist. So I, I suppose I have, you know, as a filmmaker, I have a, sort of an extra uh, sort of susceptibility to that. But I actually was interested in it because it was more emotionally open than a lot of their work really all of their work um mm-hmm. the it, it it's it really allows you to identify uh with a character and really feel for him in a way that um they're often quite guarded about and so uh you know i think that's what made it sort of distinguishes it from other uh you know their other films and their other great films uh is that there's a kind of uh, increased level of um uh, empathy you're allowed to enter in and and real sentiment <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that I, that I found uh, refreshing for them. And then on the flip side, we have intolerable cruelty. <laughs> Frankie, yeah, that's yeah. what you wrote about. <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting. I had a sort of in first coming to it, I had a similar thought process as as Steve. It was always a film that I felt was kind of overlooked. Um, in their work that some people just not liking it or maybe just not knowing it um, never re- it never really got talked about in anything I had read about them and the same is true of uh, Lewin Davis um, but I just I guess I another part of why I came to it is because I don't know in my head I just had that the commercials for it always stuck in my head and I don't even remember the commercials being that um, impressive or, or even memorable, but just, I remember it was 2003. I was 14 or something like that then. And, you know, I was just getting to know film and I was picking up all these different things and, from what I did know about the Coen brothers at that young age, that seemed like a weird movie that they would be making. And I don't know. I eventually just came to it, uh, during the pandemic and I said, huh, 
this is kind of interesting. It has a lot of different modes. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Yeah, I think I was nine years old when it came out. I'd never even heard of this movie before you pitched it, honestly. (laughs) One thing that stuck out to me is this was originally slated to be directed by either Ron Howard or Jonathan Demme. How, Um, How do you think this film might be different if one of those two was at the helm? I feel like if Ron Howard had done it, it would have been an actual romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. And if Demi had done it, it would have been a film noir. <laughs> so I think I think the Coens kind of knew that going into it and said, why don't we just have the best of both worlds and make something incoherent but interesting? I found that uh, that's really interesting. I had no idea that they were up for it. I mean, I agree that certainly uh, Howard, I think, would have found, uh, probably tried to go after a little more of the romance, um, you know, uh, in it. He's much more of a, a kind of classical uh, uh, director. Um, you know, Demi, uh, that's interesting. I mean, he could go film noir, but, you know, he does have that side. I mean, Something Wild is uh, another film that, uh, mixes tones uh, and uh, it would have been interesting to see if he tried something like that it, it, the Demi films of this period were he wasn't really oh, I guess the truth about Charlie a very unsuccessful remake of um, uh, charade he's uh, doing something like that where he's you know mixing romance with a kind of espionage uh, thing, but uh, it would have been interesting to see what uh, Demi would have done with it. According to Wikipedia, it said Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant would have been the leads. Hmm. So, yeah. I'm I'm sort of interested. I mean, I'm actually interested what you remember of the ad campaign because I remember the poster, uh, and it really did look like. Uh, not a Coen Brothers film. They, you know, I think they used that shot in the elevator, uh, and it it looked like it could be with Catherine Hagel, or you know, something like that, a kind of rom, a romantic comedy like that. Um, and it doesn't really give you a flavor of the tone of the movie uh, because it, it, it is uh, completely there. I mean, it fits mm-hmm. completely with their style. Um, there really is, you know, very little departure or concession to uh, a larger budget kind of uh, uh, movie, except for that the leads are, you know, huge A-list actors. Yeah, I think that image is really stuck in my head of... Uh, Clooney just kind of longingly looking at Zeta Jones and not if I had not known that it was a Coen Brothers movie it would make sense that those two actors were were still in it because like Mm -hmm. Clooney can play that and Zeta Jones can play that and you know I don't I didn't know enough about film to really appreciate this at the time but you know thinking back on it you know even if it were like a Ron Howard or a Demi uh, helming it, you know, you could see based on that image or based on that poster, I imagine more ads, that it would be a more like self-conscious and dedicated homage to a screwball comedy of the 30s. And there are parts of that in there. Um, But yeah, it just goes in different directions. 
So Frankie, in your essay, you compare this film to reality television, mainly because of the characters. They're just kind of terrible, just un- <laughs> unlikable people. Um, and you talk about the cheap entertainment they provide. Um, you also relate it to just kind of vampiric predation, I guess. Um, <laughs> what's the link between the Coen's vampire lore and reality TV here? The way that I would put it is that they're... It's just this sense that that we're not able to get rid of these characters um, in the similar way that you wouldn't be able to get rid of a vampire um, <laughs> because they're mostly immortal. Um, to me, it just, I mean, I had mentioned about, you know, being fairly young and when this movie came out in 2003. And I guess that cultural moment that, you know, bush era cultural moment growing up in it and um again not really being cognizant of what culture was or what high culture was or what was happening to culture at the time but growing up at the birth of reality television seeing all of this like really cheaply produced really i mean i guess dumb is a bad word but it just you know (laughs) i mean it i guess more neutrally it's just not very thoughtful um, (laughs) or thought out um and just kind of seeing that we had the germ of that in the early 2000s and it's only gotten worse we obviously still have romantic television it is uh, sorry, uh, reality television. Um, there's romantic television too, um, but just the the dumbness or the lack of thoughtfulness has just metastasized throughout the culture even more um, into you know feature films and things like that. So yeah, I guess the the vampiric element in is just this um, undead cultural product that uh, won't let go of our imaginations. So you talk about how the Coen's films are often populated by insensitive, cruel, and idiotic characters. Mm. There are some interesting people in this movie. I mean, obviously, George Clooney is a divorce lawyer who's in the pursuit of perfect white teeth. I mean, <laughs> there's he's in court, and he's talking about how, you know, Attila the Hun and Henry VIII didn't just win. They destroyed. And mm-hmm. he's... <laughs> You know, they're all about just trying to get, like, the most out of other people. So what do you Mm. see as just kind of the... Because you mentioned this kind of spiraled into a greater, you know, reality TV. Not this this movie specifically, but what can you say about this movie as a whole, their main characters? Yeah, it's... They're just... Like you had mentioned, and I guess like I wrote, they're just awful people. (laughs) But they're they're so much fun to see. Like, when we first see... Clooney in the film you know like you had mentioned his teeth and that's like the first thing that we see of him and he's on the you know he's driving along and he's on his you know early you know early 2000s cell phone and and all of that and you know just he's like a cheap politician almost when you first see him um he's all or like a used car salesman or something like that he's just I mean, Clooney plays it so well. He's just the kind of guy that you wouldn't want to be stuck in a room with because he would be constantly trying to sell you something. Um, But if you're not in the room with him, 
it's kind of fun to watch him work and see how he how he jumps from one person and one thought to the next and he always has some kind of an angle and uh, Marilyn who is uh, Catherine Zeta Jones character she's much more polished and still calculating uh, is still always looking to work an angle trying to work somebody over uh, but she's not as accessible as he is um and you know that's part of the fun of the movie is that uh Clooney or Miles his uh, name and his character's name um that he gets kind of roped in to this uh romantic noir subplot and he gets waxed by this woman who is basically him um yeah it's just how callous and shallow and dumb he is so much so that he can't even really uh, realize what's going on around him or have control of what's going on around him one thing that might be good to mention briefly is we entirely skipped the plot (laughs) do you want to give us a quick mini rundown of what's going on in this movie (laughs) sure um so george clooney plays this uh High high profile divorce attorney uh, in Beverly Hills, um, and you know he sort like you were kind of mentioning, Craig. He he has this ambition in him, um, to, you know, to be the best, and he's basically reached the summit of of his abilities early on in the film, and he's kind of bored. Um, with what he has accomplished. He wants something else. And this is kind of where uh, Marilyn uh, comes in, who he meets in the first real case that we see at the start of the movie. Um, He's representing her husband in court. Uh, She's on the other side. And he's just instantly drawn to her. Um, But in that court case he eventually wins for her husband um and marilyn who i mean if she has a job it's marrying people and taking their money um she kind of sees this sees miles is aware that she that he's totally smitten with her and knows that she can use that to get revenge on him for winning in court so that becomes part of the movie is uh, her, you know, devising a ruse to get Miles to fall in love with her um, so that they eventually uh, kind of get married. <laughs> and uh, she then leaves Miles, who subsequently realizes that everything about Marilyn that he thought he liked was fake, but he still likes her. Um, and so it's becomes then his effort to get revenge on her for tricking him and yeah it's just the constant swirl of them betraying each other and eventually coming back together in the end of the movie and uh kind of running off and into the sunset but as i sort of write about in the essay not really a believable ending that these two would actually fall in love it can't be the uh, romantic comedy of the 30s. There 
too bad uh, as people. So now one thing that stuck out to me with this movie and you know so many of the Coen Brothers movies is that they have these minor characters that often just go way too far. I mean, there's a divorce lawyer here who cries at weddings. There's a train enthusiast and obviously the stereotypical sleazy hitman in a sweatsuit. Are there any characters you were not on board with here? Hmm. No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think for different reasons, I appreciated all of them um not not to say that i agree with all of them as you know morally <laughs> but um i mean it, it, it's a movie that really seems to to relish um seeing the extreme position that all of these characters are put in uh or get themselves into uh like the i didn't talk about this much but the Jeffrey Rush character at the start of the movie who, you know, it's, it's a weird uh, role to have him in as like a cameo uh, for such like a, he has so little screen time, but that he pops up at the beginning, middle and end of the movie is sort of like this, almost like an MC character telling us about the different moments or different transformations uh, in these characters, um, or in their, their different experiences. Um, you know, he, he's just, you know, he's a, he's a vile, um, crass TV, like, uh, soap opera producer. Um, and there's really nothing good about him. He, at the start of the movie, he sees, realizes his wife is cheating on him and tries to kill her and her lover. Um, then you see him later in the film and he's um, without a home, uh, literally living in the gutter, at which point Marilyn finds him and enlists him um, to help her deceive Miles. And then at the end of the film, uh, he is a producer again for... I guess like in America's funniest home videos type show where you're watching people get caught cheating, which is a show sort of hosted by this other character. Um, Gus Pelch played a great performance by Cedric, the entertainer um, who at different points, Marilyn and miles uh, reach out to, to help them do some sort of devious, um, activities uh to get one over on the other um so yeah there there's a lot of characters who i didn't like what they were doing but it was fun to kind of see what happened to them something i thought of uh uh, frankie reading your uh essay was um you know you mentioned the you know it really is a comedy with a a lot of uh, (laughs) film noir and qualities in it um i it made me think uh of Wells's touch of evil and the same kind of you know that you you would never call like I mean Wells never did a comedy and never should have but he does have a very cynical uh sense of humor uh and also visually and stylistically they do have something in common that kind of grotesquing 
uh, of uh, you know using a wide-angle lens uh, and a kind of grotesquing of character that's done both visually and uh, uh, in the writing and, and the you know and the casting. You know, I, I think about in a Touch of Evil the uh, I forgot the name of the character, but the you know the whatever the sort of night watchman or the 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 handyman guy that shows up at the motel where Janet Lee's being uh, held and drugged, uh, he really could be a a Cohen character. That kind of you know right on the edge of grotesque. I, I would say in Wells, uh, it's often over the edge of grotesque, uh, and but they're always right on the edge of uh, grotesque. Uh, uh, with these uh, characters, but they they do add uh, eccentricity or um, uh, uh, an asthma inhaler <laughs> yeah. to yeah. to to just kind of give it a little. You know, they're just right on the you know like a little coin balancing on the edge of like mm-hmm. uh, just a little humanity uh, in in uh, in these people. No, it's funny that you mentioned that because yeah, I think my favorite scenes are. When um, Miles goes to like, the, I guess the it's the senior partner guy, the head of the firm, and he's basically like, you know, he's this you know decrepit old guy who can barely talk, and he's hooked up to this horrible machine with tubes coming mm-hmm. out of him, and I mean, it's just such a beautiful, insane, grotesque image of mm-hmm. like, you know, what this horrible lawyer yeah uh, does, and. He's like he's like a Sheldon Adelson type type character. Like I mean, he just looks sickly. He looks uh, just cursed by his profession, by uh, Im- implicitly like his wealth. Um, and you know, Miles sees that, and he's like like you were saying, Steve. He's you know he's got that just enough humanity. Both Miles uh, um, and sort of seeing the decrepitness of this figure. And you can kind of see in Miles's face that he's like half aware that this is what his future is. <laughs> yes. Um, but he doesn't quite get it. So yeah, there, I, I agree with you. The yeah. two sides, you know, that coin that you were talking about. It, it, it's really interesting that it is a matter of, dir- I mean, it is a matter of directorial like emphasis, the, because you could take the same scenes and scoot them a little, you know, away from that. Um, uh, and they do have a, a tendency to kind of go for the guttural or to go for the uh, throat a little bit. Uh, and that, yeah, that lawyer, that lawyer hooked up to all those tubes is like, is is one of those where they're really going for revolting symbol of a corrupt system <laughs> you know uh, uh they're you know and it it does make it hard to go for the romance when they want to go for and that is the issue with this movie is like you how do you then switch over to action because the movie does in script form build towards love and build towards ripping up the Massey prenup, you know? Yeah. Uh, the Massey prenup, for those uh, uh, listening who haven't seen it, is the uh, uh, prenuptial agreement the, that is, uh, you know, uh, the uh, a great feat uh, of, uh, <laughs> of legal work uh, for divorce l- lawyers. But yeah, it does, it, it, it makes it their instinct for kind of social satire, really going for the guttural, 
really can get in the way of the romance, uh, you know, and the balance of it. It'd be interesting what uh, someone else would do, you know, with this because the script's really very tight. You know, when I was mm-hmm. watching it, uh, I had just watched Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which is, you know, I think by nature a little loose. You know, it's the Odyssey, and it it kind of rambles and wanders a bit. It it it's not you know uh, it's not going all over the place, but this is a very tightly constructed uh, uh, film in comparison. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, it, I, <laughs> I'm still sort of uh, interested in this issue of if other people had you know the what if if other people had directed this you know. So this movie comes at a really interesting time in their career because it's two films after A Brother Where Art Thou and two before No Country for Old Men. Mm -hmm. I feel like the Coens so often jump between comedy and more serious works and then sometimes alternating back and forth. But where do you guys feel they're at their strongest? I've always felt they're strongest in their dramas, um, which always have humor in them. Uh, I mean, even No Country for Old Men, which is... A frig- you know, a Cormac McCarthy, one, you know, one of the most hardcore, like, not funny <laughs> kind of writers you could think of, like, with a very bleak worldview. There, there is humor in there. I mean, the that performance of Javier Bardem's and the writing for that performance has some real humor in it. It's very wicked, but it's the kind of wicked you see in great film noir. So I, I tend to like their dramas a little better, but uh, the I, you know I was thrilled to watch this one again because I do think it's a little I think it it, it is uh, under talked about and it is a very it, there are major artists who major American film artists who have kind of redone they did a sort of draft of the screwball comedy with Hudsucker Proxy and now with a lot more success and experience under their belt they've kind of gone back and done it and it is i think it is much more successful than uh well financially but also artistically i think it's more successful than uh hudsucker proxy uh it's definitely worth another look but what do you think uh frankie do you are you on on the comedy side i have a good friend who really loves burn after reading and and Mm. really does side more on the comedy yeah i guess for me i always have trouble deciding which one is which for them yes, because like enough. you like you had said steve yeah because like the there's so much humor even in their dramas and even something like true grit you yes. know it has all you know with jeff bridges it has those great performances and and, and for matt damon and Haley steinfeld i don't laugh at a lot of movie comedies but they make me laugh the the scene the initial courtroom scene where at one point Marilyn's husband just gets up and you know and and starts screaming. I just love trains. <laughs> like like that's just great. It's mm-hmm. it's such a stupid line of of dialogue, but it's performed so well. Mm-hmm. Um and just to keep banging that over the head. It's not particularly dark. It's not particularly existential. Mm-hmm. They just have a really good sense to me of like the comedic tone of a scene in addition to being able to kind of smuggle in darkly comic lines or moments into otherwise dramatic scenes or a wood chipper, you know, (laughs) it it is actually, I think their comedy is a testament of like how, 
difficult it is to do comedy because their sensibility is really vibrating at a very particular frequency and you just when you're doing comedy you just comedy is more subjective and so bringing people into that is more challenging (laughs) and uh, whereas drama you have it's almost like you have more range you can you you can bring in a wider range of people into that but there I mean it's sort you know it's like uh, you know people who love curb uh, your enthusiasm and just like adore it and you know but the and you can but if you don't like it if you find it too sour or too neurotic or too you know uh, it's like you can't argue with that person there's no convincing them they just don't respond to it there's something about comedy and what you know what we're able to laugh at that when you're mixing in violence and ugliness you know you have to you have to be vibrating on their frequency you know uh to to get it and i think that's why their comedies maybe are um uh a little less uh popular though i i found out later that this movie actually made a lot of money it was uh uh 120 million it was also their most expensive movie at 60 million dollar budget i was kind of blown away by that (laughs) well those are some big stars there i'm sure that had something to do with it It, i think what's difficult as a lover of a lot of those old screwball comedies is this film really is almost like trouble in paradise or almost Mm. the lady eve or almost but of course it's the ways it's not are completely unique to them and their own you know unique point of view but you know if you love those movies and if especially if you're going in to the movie theater expecting something maybe more softer (laughs) uh it's a a hard switch where if you go into say some of their other comedies like um raising arizona or um, uh, um burn after reading you don't you're never expecting anything but (laughs) you know what you're getting i i do think that for me when i saw it in the theater uh even though i was familiar with the cohen brothers i found there was something about putting all the elements of a uh a a romantic comedy together and then playing uh george clooney basically as a character actor instead of a leading man (laughs) uh it's very i mean it's it's very unique but it does play with what you're kind of going in expecting i I found i enjoyed the film the second time more because i was looking at it more like as part of their work and less as uh, i saw this preview and or this poster and now i'm going into this movie and you know i i found it fits better it's more intellectually interesting to look at how it fits under their work than it was for me the first time i saw it in the theater now that you say it that way, I think that is my entire appreciation mm-hmm. for it. To me, it is more, like you said, it's almost more of a Coen Brothers movie because I appreciate what they're doing more than it is that I'm expecting it to be an actual romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a great point. Yeah, it's so true with Burn After Reading. You know that you know you're just getting bonkers stuff from mm-hmm. them working out whatever they had to work out after no country for old men mm-hmm. whatever new artistic <laughs> direction they needed to go down after that um you don't think you're gonna get a, a kiss at the end of that thing exactly <laughs> you know exactly exactly you know? 
Alright, well I think that wraps up Intolerable Cruelty for now, so we'll be moving on to Inside Lewin Davis next. Hang me, oh hang me I'll be dead and gone Hang me, oh hang me I'll be dead and gone Alright, so I started watching Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder review the other night. Oh. Everyone had told me like how great the live footage is, but I I, I have not really, seen it yet. Yet oh you're it's, disappointed? Oh no, I the, Okay. It's very yeah. good. Uh we didn't finish it yet, but yeah. I was just surprised how rarely they'd actually show a full song. Yes. It's kinda strange. Um but especially in music oriented films, does it bother you when they don't show a full song? Yeah, it does. You know, I'm doing some writing on artists and art uh, on film. So, you know, films about songwriters, films about uh, painters, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And so I've been looking at a lot of them lately. I was watching one that was frustrating. uh, I was watching Songwriter, which is a, a... the early 80s film with Chris Christopherson and Will, Willie Nelson. It's directed by Alan Rudolph. Uh, and I was just getting irritated <laughs> with it as they kind of do these montages of shows and don't have the confidence to let a song play and actually figure out how to integrate it into the narrative, uh, but instead kind of hop through uh, shows. It's a real hard thing to uh, uh, do and figure out how to do. And one of the reasons I think this is such a successful uh, integration of music and uh, narrative, because they they really understand what the songs are. They really chose them very carefully, working with uh, T-Bone Burnett, uh, you know, who has a, a encyclopedic knowledge of uh, American folk music. Uh, and, um, and they, as filmmakers, are at the point in their career where they're so confident uh, in how to blend song with film story, song with image. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, I just have to say, your films use music really well. I, I just really appreciate the way you use music. I'm just curious what you think is some of the keys to using music with film. Well, I mean, when I started making films, uh, like in high school, I just slap, I just loved music so much. I would just slap in anything and I used music very poorly, (laughs) you know, uh, I would just, I was into the feelies and I would throw in, uh, the feelies. I was into the talking heads and I would throw in the, you know, and so I think unlearning that, uh, you know, uh, unlearning that was a big part of it. <laughs> that, you know, you have to, I learned that you have to think about how the song is going to interact with the image. Uh, and you have to think, you know, and this movie in particular has, uh, you know, a key actor who is a singer. And that makes a total difference uh, rather than a movie where Oscar Isaac uh you know rides over the golden gate bridge to the sound of you know a, you know Alanis Morissette or something uh you know covering over the the drudge of the travel montage you know um and um you know so i i think to me the uh 
the key is really thinking of them as uh, separate things that have like a marriage you like that you have to match up very carefully you know you can't just put any two people together in a room <laughs> and you can't just put any image with any sound you have to really think about how they interact with each other and how what the audience is supposed to do with that connection or else you just get noise you get you know you get feedback um, and I, you know, being a teacher also, uh, you know, I, I see that that mistake that I made when I was a young filmmaker being made, you know, every semester because, and I, you know, and that's their right to make it as it was mine, you know, uh, because it's very seductive music, uh, because it's so powerful, um, uh, it's very seductive to put it on top of your film, especially when you're just learning how to make films and maybe the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or whatever song you're putting on it are maybe of higher quality than what you're making. You know, it's very, you know, seductive. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the most interesting things about Inside Lewin Davis is that really the only music is on stage being performed by people. There's no yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. What makes this use of music so convincing in the movie? Or they made a real risk, you know, cost, you know, casting Oscar Isaac. This is 2013, so he really, I mean, he had a, he, he did not really have a, a persona or he was an unknown. I mean, he was an actor, he was working, but no one would be able to recognize him. Uh, you know, now he's, I mean, you know, I think he's very, he's sort of known as one of the, you know, our generation's Al Pacino or so. I mean he's known as like one of the real quality actors and it's really this movie that made his whole uh, reputation so their commitment to casting him was not because they just wanted to cast an unknown it was because he could play the guitar and sing right. uh, and that's one of the big problems for you know musical films uh, is that we don't really have the talent base necessarily of musical performers the way we did in like the vaudeville era where like you know they everyone had to be able to pull off a song and then i i think for the rest of it i i i would think they would give a lot of credit to t-bone burnett who you know also did the music with them on oh brother where art thou and you know i think is a huge uh you know very successful part of this movie. I do see in both O Brother and this that there is an added humanity in the music uh, that really balances the stew of the, the Coen brothers, for me at least, you know, because it is a cynical stew and it, it might taste a little sour, <laughs> you know, to certain palates. Really the, the result of this um, uh, that makes this so believable, this music. Uh, it is that decision of uh, casting Oscar, the T-Bone collaboration. And then, of course, you know, they're able to get Justin Timberlake and, you know, all these people who are really singing. Uh, and, uh, and that helps tremendously. Something I loved about your essay, Steve, you know, you were talking about how the, the songs have a real connection to the narrative and like there's an actual correspondence between what what's performed and then what's experienced by oscar isaac's character and then all of that is deepened by the fact that we actually have isaac being the one who's singing like you said it's not it's not just alanis morissette you know singing over all of this i was really touched by the way that you were talking about that 
in your essay and like the the depth of humanity that the movie has like you said for such a cynical and depressing and existentially like morose yeah. movie yeah i know i i um the the when you think about oscar isaac and i mean i would love to talk to him and just like what was your audition before this he he is living that life if you look at his credits before this it's like law and order guest spots and you know i mean he is doing what lewin is doing so i mean you really feel that in his performance um uh and i i you know i don't i don't know for a fact i mean maybe he's from money and is living on a, you know, was living on a big trust fund penthouse or something. I have no idea what his background is, but you do sense that he connects to this uh, struggle uh, uh, in the music. And, you know, the, and that is the thing with, you know, integrating music into a, a movie is that you can't have the music numbers be breaks uh, where we sit and watch a show and then start the movie again. They have to flow. And it's all one thing. The audience sees it as one thing. If you, the director, think of it as separate things, like, and now we're going to have a break for the movie, and now we're going to get back to the story, then it, then it won't work. So, you know, as I talk about in the essay, every song has some effect on Isaac, you know, or Lewin Davis in the movie and, and most of it is it just makes him frustrated that he's not successful uh and that these clowns are uh and it's uh it's a real interesting mix of what it adds to um their you know the coen brothers uh you know uh cynicism um you know what all this kind of genuinely beautiful music uh though some of it has some camp to it but you know it is, you know, even when the sort of Peter, Paul and Mary type trio of Carrie Mulligan, uh, when, even when they're singing, you know, there's a certain level of camp to that, uh, you know, looking back through history. But, you know, 500 Miles is a very beautiful song and it's sung uh, uh, gorgeously. Uh, so you're sort of mixing that genuine beauty with our observation of Lewin's uh, cynicism as he's struggling to be a, a folk singer, a working folk singer. The other thing just that uh, comes up in relation to that is I, I was I was watching, you know, just as a point of comparison, because I think a lot of people have seen Oh, oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You do see the difference of uh, a performer who's not singing their songs. Uh, George Clooney uh, is not singing those songs. Uh, and you can tell, but of course, it's a much broader, broader comedy. And it doesn't ask you to identify emotionally with that character the way, you know, Lewin is really asking you to feel for this guy. And I think the, 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 uh, the Coens knew that, you know, you, for this movie, this has to be authentic. We can't put George Clooney up there uh, and have, you know, whoever the guy from uh, uh, the Lumineers or whoever, you know, uh, we can't stick his voice, you know, behind there, you know. Uh, we really, we need authenticity here. I think this film, it's just so funny to put against Intolerable Cruelty because it's just so not flashy and yeah. you know one of my favorite parts about your essay steve is how you wrote about movement in the film and mm. in particular you, you highlight you know how they track him in the train and then there's the shots when he's driving by the exit to akron where he could have gone and seen his child or 
not and he decides not to and then it's mirrored with when he sees bob dylan in the club for the first time yeah what stands out to you about the visuals and how they construct just motion i mean the film in general is just a great example of like a really mature film artist like in the sort of at the peak of their powers where they've pared down a lot. I mean, if you think, you know, most people have probably seen or film fans have seen Blood Simple or Raising Arizona, uh, you know, uh, two, you know, really impressive, uh, you know, debut features. Uh, And you just see how much more... they do things with, you know, three cuts where now they do things with one cut, you know, one shot or, uh, you know, they were sort of famous for and I, this is not this is what you do when you're young. You want to you want to sort of show what you know about the medium. You want to do new things. You want to conquer things. So there's that famous shot. And, you know, uh, uh, there are a lot of very bold camera moves that they're doing with uh, they're working with uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, who went on to uh, shoot the um, uh, the Adams Family movie and direct them Uh, so they have that kind of adventurous sort of uh, aggressive camera style where like there's that shot where the the camera's going down the bar in blood simple and then kind of lifts up and over a sort of a guy who's drunk (laughs) sort of on the bar and like keeps moving forward they're really restrained here but of course they have all the same feel for rhythm and movement as they did they don't lose it they don't sort of make you know something stiff they're just uh they're just getting more out of less uh and it's very appropriate for the tone and mood of this movie which doesn't uh doesn't whap you over the head in the same way as their uh you know some of their earlier uh films um And uh, the whole beginning of the film with his sort of, you know, pursuit over getting money and rent uh, and paying back people and doing all the kind of haggling you have to do when you're broke in New York City. uh, The way they film that, the movement of that, uh, his commute on the train, showing the sort of the the stations kind of whip, whip, whip by, they, they, they really understand how to make his work outside the stage feel like music and feel like music you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to spend a life doing you know dr- mm. the drudgery it's very hard to do drudgery without making the audience feel um, you want to communicate drudgery without the audience feeling like please get me out of here <laughs> you know you want to communicate that he wants to be up there where things flow and things are easy and feel natural, but you don't want the audience to actually feel like, oh my God, this movie is so dull and slow. It, it has a great feel. It has a kind of drive to it with him running around all over the city. Um, and, uh, and then it also makes these great spaces for the performances so that because you're in constant motion outside the performance, when he sits down and actually just plays and those things are all shot very simply, all those performances, you know, not always in one take, but very simply so that there's, it opens up space for you to really just hear the song And now we're just, because we've been moving around so much, we're now kind of open to listening to the song. And we just, we have, (laughs) 
we actually can now listen to the lyrics. We can he look at his performance, what he feels about what he's playing. Uh, and it's a, a beautiful presentation of that music. No, I mean, you capture it really well when you talk about this contrast between like movement and stillness. And I think it's really is a testament to, to their filmmaking because one of the things, at least from a narrative level that I was struck by is that, you know, he has almost kind of a, a passive or a reactive life, yes. you know, uh, it's, you know, when he makes that choice to not see his child, mm -hmm. it's a choice on one hand, but he's so beaten down by everything, you know, there's just this, it's like, it's not a choice. Yeah. It's, it would not be possible for him to make the, he, in his position, he doesn't have the ability to really make that choice or to really do anything other than to just react to the various situations that he gets himself into or that are imposed upon him. Well, it's one of the things as, you know, watching watching these films in the last couple of weeks, I, I rewatched a bunch of their films. You do see they have this uh, philosophy they're working out that really has to do with you know, whether we, whether there is reason, whether there's free will, you know, they don't exactly have an answer. They're working it out. <laughs> and this film is very much in keeping with that. Like, are we prisoners of timing or do we have uh, free will? Do we have agency over what we're doing? And uh, are we in charge, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. or is this all some kind of cruel cosmic joke? Um, they they are kind of uh, impish philosophers, uh, the Cohen brothers, you know, and that's there in intolerable cruelty oh, yeah. too. The the way things kind of interact, the their interest in serendipity and coincidence, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. things wrapping around and biting you in the ass, and uh, you know, uh, but then also turning out in your favor. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, but, you know, moments like that, I find, are very resonant in their work where you have these things slide. They like those shots of, like, things sliding by, you know, as if you're on a track and you'll never quite get it. And that's, you know, moving, going past, he, he finds out, the plot is he finds out he has a kid in Akron, but he's, uh, he's not in a position uh, to really go visit the kid or something. He has to get back, not really emotionally in the position or uh, financially in the position. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, he's driving someone else's car and he just watches Akron sort of slip by. Uh, and they do that with these, you know, moving shots, just seeing that light in the distance kind of drift on by and it's mirrored again there when he he's about to go get beaten up in the alley uh, <laughs> uh, and he passes right at the end of the film he passes he looks over and he sees Bob Dylan at, on the stage and Bob Dylan uh, of course in that folk scene uh, is going to be the big hit <laughs> and he's going to be the also ran <laughs> and you just see that sort of sliding doors of like different lives just kind of pass by and it does give you what what i think is interesting about it is it is uh, visualizing whether we have choice or we're on a track but it does it in a way that really makes you feel a sense of loss or longing so it's taking a very high level intellectual idea philosophical idea 
And it's actually putting it into something that you have some feeling for. Like, oh, there goes Bob Dylan. I'm not going to be Bob Dylan. I'm going to be the guy who opened before Bob Dylan, <laughs> you know, and that everyone forgets, you know. Uh, and anyway, you, you see that over and over. I mean, it's even there in, um, you know, in No Country for Old Men. I mean, the, the thing that uh, really... I remember when I saw that movie in the theater that that when uh, the Harvey R. Bardem character gets in that traffic accident that kind of comes out of nowhere, uh, you know, just suddenly sort of is there reason to something or does something just happen? Are you are you uh, are you in charge or are you just at the mercy of uh, uh, a uncontrollable sort of connectivity of cause and effect you know it's very rare that you can actually translate ideas like that it takes a lot of skill as a filmmaker to be able to turn kind of a philosophical uh, idea into an actual living breathing film <laughs> and to to do it at the at the level of form like you're saying with shots or even in intolerable cruelty like with genre and with noir that's right playing with the serendipity of Marilyn coming back into Miles's life or just the existential dread of noir yeah. and not knowing if you have control over your life. I think I think you're right. They're not doing it in dialogue. You know, mo- it, the right. Linklater way is the the way, you know, most people do it. They're actually making living breathing films that are kind of philosophical uh theories put into action. You know, they're and they're they're not they're they're dramas. They're not solutions. They're dramatizing these questions, you know. Um, and I, I find it really uh, interesting that, you know, No Country for Old Men being one of the most powerful one. A movie with very little dialogue, really. Yes. Um, yeah. a, a very spare, a lot of uh, just struggle, uh, like Lewin, a struggle, <laughs> movement and struggle. So in your essay, Steve, I loved how you put it. You just said, this film grinds us into folk. Yeah. I, yeah. I love that term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I, I mean, I, I thought about that because, I mean, I don't particularly, I don't have any background in folk music or, I mean, in, in listening. I mean, actually, I do, I guess. Peter, I my As a kid, we listened to Peter, Paul, and Mary. It was the first concert I went to. And, and they also loved the other guys, the Kingston Trio, who uh, uh, were the other kind of big popular folk acts that, you know, would have been... Um, uh, you know, people that uh, Lewin would have really hated because <laughs> um, uh, they were like selling records um, that my parents were buying. Um, but um, the movie prepares you, it turns you into the audience that is ready to hear this, you know, by, by, by putting you physically into his toil of trying to make a living, you then become the folk the regular people the working people and now you can hear these sort of by the end of the film you're listening to a sea shanty on an ordinary day i'm not ready to listen to a sea shanty like you have to grind me down and sort of get me in the right mood 
so that I can maybe understand a timeless tale of struggle, you know? Uh, you're not always in the mood for that. And I, I think they did uh, an even better job than they did in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou for that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that movie is much more stylized and, uh, and dips much more into the grotesque than, uh, than this one. Uh, and so I really am able to enter, you know, those songs, even the songs of you know, three folk singers who are in these like laughable cable knit sweaters, you know, singing some like song. There's one song, the one that goes jingle jangle, you know, Irish folk song that's just like, what is this thing? But you get into it. You can get into it because they have grinded you and prepared you both rhythmically by by sort of having something that sort of opens up and suddenly it's almost like you're in a clearing and there's a song, you know, and you're ready to hear it now. Uh, but also emotionally kind of preparing you to be in the right uh, sense and then also connecting it to the narrative. So then you're looking at what Lewin's reaction is to it. And that is and that he's hurting deepens your understanding of these songs of suffering. I was really blown away by the supporting cast in this film. I mean, Adam Driver obviously steals the spot. Yes, he does. Me. That's just such a great it's very role. Very funny. But I mean, even Carrie Mulligan just being the foul-mouthed ex-girlfriend, she cracked me up. But all these other musicians who appear in the film just bring another depth to it. But just the way he reacts to them gets progressively worse. I mean, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, I I do get it. I mean, being a filmmaker, you know, I think everyone who works in the arts, you, you have to struggle with that, like, wait a second, they're getting a response I want. And, uh, you know, so, and we all know we're not supposed to then yell at those people and say, it's not fair, it's not, we all know that. But, you know, there's some part of you that does. And uh, so I really identified with that. You know, it is a, it's a very, uh, it's a flaw that is quite relatable. It's dealing with vanity, you know, and a lot of a lot of the Coen brothers, you know, I mean, obviously, <laughs> George Clooney, and, yeah. uh, you know, it's he's whitening his teeth. Uh, they're observers of, you know, human flaw. <laughs> and uh, I think vanity is one of their uh, real, I don't know, what do you say, bugaboos? <laughs> like, they really like... <laughs> Yeah. They're, they're going after that. They're going to expose uh, uh, that. But they do, in, especially in Lewin Davis, I mean, they do it with a lot of humor in all of their movies. But in Lewin Davis, Davis is probably, they do it with the most compassion, you know? Yeah. Um, because you do still stay with this guy, whereas you might leave some of the other ones. I think that's that's such a great point, like their attention to vanity, because... You know, if you if you think about it, whether in Intolerable Cruelty or some of their other films, you know, the characters who are vain are sort of trying to control their worlds and like want to. It's not just it's about physical appearance and sort of performance and recognition and all of that. But they want to carve out a space for themselves. And for a lot of their characters, we're supposed to see how ridiculous it is that they're trying to do that and we're maybe not asked to sympathize mm -hmm. with their vanity. But as you say, in Lewin Davis, we are, because it is a relatable flaw mm -hmm. and it's true for artists. Like you said, you know, it's true even for me who I'm very far from an artist, but you know, if somebody writes something really <laughs> good, like a, like an article or a book or something, I say, 
well, why, why can't? Why didn't I, I do that? <laughs> yeah, or worse, why don't I if they it? write something very puerile and it's a big hit, you know? Yeah, yeah it, exactly. It's, yeah. Uh, and that's off, you know, what, uh, you know, he's dealing with too, uh, you know, especially with that song, uh, Please, Mr. Kennedy, uh, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, don't, <laughs> don't send me into outer space. I want to bring in another film here. Um, Steve, for our October Horror series, you wrote about Laird Krieger's Hangover Square, and it's about a composer who is trying to write basically his masterpiece and it really captures you know up to the conclusion the inner torment of being an artist i'm just curious what you see as an overlap between those two films because they're the two articles you've written for us i mean in hangover square you have a you have the artistic struggle put into split personality basically he he goes into these fugue states where uh he's very repressed in his regular life and then you know mr hyde comes out (laughs) and he uh, murders people basically uh and he's triggered (laughs) what's great is he's triggered by uh abrasive sound so essentially bad music uh so you know i mean maybe the coen brothers should do it it's essentially lewin you know Mm. it's lewin who is like suffering i mean the difference with lewin davis is i mean there's a split in lewin davis too the split is just between who is who he is on stage and his ability to be totally fluid and open emotionally and calm Versus his life off stage, which is you know very circular and uh, and jagged, and it's very you know it's him going around in circles essentially, uh, but not just circles, but like windy things winding around and figuring out ah I'm right back where I started, you know, uh, so not a circle that he understands as a circle. But that's the split that film has to figure. And both of them are trying to figure out, well, how do we make a movie that uh, puts the artistic uh, struggle into an experience for the audience? And they're both interesting ways to do it. You know, uh, one, uh, you know, one is, yeah, to actually have a character who's split. And then the other one is to sort of find a way to make the split uh, more spatial, I guess. Uh, in you know, in terms of in on the stage, but also not just spatial, but oral too. You know, in terms of uh, sound, um, that you've got uh, you know, kind of chaos and then order, uh, and that and it what it does is it gives you the audience. I mean, when you're when those music numbers start, there's a kind of natural pull towards them. Because it's settled, it's quiet, like he's no longer yelling. (laughs) There is a kind of draw uh, to the silence by putting us through the 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 grinding into folk, as I as I talked about. Um, One guy hears bad music and goes and becomes a split personality. And one guy hears bad music and you follow him as he suffers. And then you understand the beauty and release of his music better. <laughs> like, because you see, you go through his struggle. They're just different kind of narrative structures to go after uh, the same thing. I mean, the end, the the final um, performance in Hangover Square where he plays his, uh, you know, his symphony, uh, you know, in a burning building and, you know, uh, and is left there to die. Uh, and Lewin Davis playing his last song uh, or playing his song to um, uh, uh, 
to the uh, to the big agent, the Albert Grossman figure played by F. Murray Abraham, and then he just says it won't sell. They're kind of similar deaths, you know. That is really played as like death, you know, and, in, and Bob in Dylan Davis. coming on after and Bob too. Dylan I mean. coming on. It's like death. They're both dealing with tragic music stories, you know, that really end in death. Um, and then, you know, how do we? How do we deal with that? How do we tell those kind of stories without tipping into something that is just bleak and horrible? You know, I mean, that's the art of tragedy. Uh, and, I, you know, what I like about this film uh, is that there's a lot of beauty in the struggle, and that's not always there. I mean, there is be- <laughs> there is a kind of beauty in something like No Country for Old Men, uh, and really an, an intolerable cruel, cruelty, too, in the humor and the uh, the color. and the, There is a kind of, but this really has something you can really grab onto, an expression of suffering. <laughs> that, you know, when you think about it, you know, <clears throat> Miles and intolerable cruelty is his expression. <laughs> and the, prob- the reason he's, has a, he's having a midlife crisis is his ex- mode of expression is uh, lawyering. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, he doesn't have a yeah. song to sing, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, um, you know, and then obviously in No Country for Old Men, uh, <laughs> they have no express. Their expression is just doing their job well. Uh, but that involves killing people. This is just a rare film for them because it has that that real space. I was sad that it didn't kind of get embraced more. And I, I always, you know, you always have to look at your own subjective you know, uh, you know, we talk about biases uh, so often about sort of negative things, but of course, I I do recognize that this touched me because I'm a filmmaker. But you know, as you said, Frankie, you're not a filmmaker, and you, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. you went along with it. You know, I, yeah. I think I was very moved by it. It's a very touching film. Yeah, I I think if uh, if certainly if anyone listening has ever found. Uh, the Coen brothers too sour or bleak. I, I, this is the movie to watch. Uh, this is yeah. This is their most uh, open uh, and uh, and compassionate uh, film. So one last thing I want to touch on. We haven't we teased it, but we haven't really gotten into it. There's a scene portion midway through where they go on a trip to Chicago and Lewin's with John Goodman, who's a he's a jazz musician, I believe, and a his driver who's a writer and it's just this kind of miserable trip (laughs) but like you said it's one of the most compassionate or their most compassionate film and i'm just curious how that factors into it for you well i just think it's really interesting i mean one of the you know they do such a good job creating a kind of knot that he's stuck in in the village uh you know he goes from here to here to here and it's like the more he travels the more the knot cinches and he's trapped and then he gets to go out on the road you know out to chicago and yet they keep the knot <laughs> tied like um, he's stuck in a car and in the back of him is john goodman who's playing a uh, a heroin addicted uh, jazz artist who really turns his nose up at uh, Lewin's uh, simple chord progressions of folk music. Uh, and then a kind of like zip lipped 
like will not talk um, uh, assistant to uh, John Goodman's character, uh, who I think is uh, plays like a frustrated novelist or something, and has you know you know only a few lines of dialogue that are like moments from his uh, uh, unpublished novel or <laughs> something. So you know he's basically in a car with two frustrated artists, <laughs> you know, and um, you know, trapping him in like that and then putting him on the road and opening up all those landscapes. And one of the, you know, visually, I think one of the things the Coen brothers are really drawn to is they go out into America, you know, and they take advantage of the spaces uh, that we have here. Uh, and, you know, I think their most, famous films uh they stick with you fargo obviously in north dakota uh you know no country for old men which was shot in marfa or outside of marfa out near alpine and in that area out in way west texas um you know they they use that space to kind of open up and get you into kind of contemplation and it does do that like you start instead of being tied up in all his sort of I got to get this money to this person and this it kind of opens up and you start sort of thinking more about what he's thinking which is what am I doing <laughs> you know what's the point of all this it opens up like that and then at the same time John Goodman's character is kind of heaving along and like like his like his career you know like Lewin's career just heaving and spurting and there's a great scene with this set they built uh, of a bathroom it's this vast bathroom so even the you know the interior spaces they make sure to make them all these vast spaces and John Goodman kind of is collapsed there on the ground and he's like drooling on the he's kind of foaming at the mouth and Lewin comes out and it's like Jesus what's going on here but you know you really see in the way that he reacts that oh Lewin is like looking at his own soul here spitting and on the on the floor and the uh, the assistant just comes out and like like it's just like no problem at all just like helps John Goodman up like this happens every day we don't know we didn't know that he was a junkie until then and so we, so now it sort of kind of comes together oh this is sort of the artist's life <laughs> this is like standard operating procedure and so that journey becomes like Lewin really looking at his ghost of Christmas future, you know, and he's like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> you know, and it's very, um, you really feel for him because then he gets to Chicago. He has to beg for an audition. He plays his guts out. He plays what is my favorite song in the movie, uh, The Death of uh, Queen Jane, uh, which is a song essentially about a, uh, a, a woman, a queen who is supposed to be giving, you know, birth to the heir uh, and uh, is in labor for nine days. And if you've ever <laughs> witnessed a long labor, it's it really it really hits you in the connection between that and, you know, Lewin's toil of trying to deliver these songs into the world. And then, uh, you know, the, the, in the song, Queen Jane dies. Uh, they cut her open and then leave her dead on the table and take the air. It's, it's really tragic. <laughs> and, uh, and at the end of that song, you know, Grossman says essentially, I don't think it'll sell. <laughs> and it's it's really uh, to go on that huge journey, you know, all the way. It's as if he went to like, you know, like a pioneer across the country. And then just to get 
it won't sell. It's really, really powerful. Um, and then that, of course, whips them right back to the village. And uh, and then you really feel, my God, this person's trapped. <laughs> you know, they did, they did it. They made the big push and they're right where they started again. And I think most people, not just artists, but anyone who's ever tried to do something really hard, it's, if you've tried to do anything that's hard, you've hit that point where you're you look up suddenly and you're like, I'm right back where I'm st- I started. I I'm I mean I remember when I got out of grad school. You know, after that big push to go to grad school, and I kind of looked up and I was like, Wait a second, I'm right back where I started. And uh, you know, because you still don't you get out and you don't have a job and you you know, it's I'm right back where I started. And it's a uh, it's a. Uh, I find they have great uh, a great feel for that kind of struggle, um, uh, and the way they're able to kind of get the music then to carry that is that's to me what's so special about the film. Yeah. I mean, you you had mentioned. I mean, we've been talking about also as sort of a side mention. You know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, and like, you know, that as a remake of the Odyssey. In a way, this is a remake of the Odyssey mm-hmm. is a remake of Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Because I think even the cat's name is Ulysses, Ulysses yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's just this sense of like, like Odysseus does, you know, he leaves home and then comes back and there the circle, completing the circle is like, it's a good thing. And, you know, he gets to come back and, you know, sees his son all grown up. And that's not what happens in Lou and Davis, <laughs> yes, right? Yes. And I think if if other filmmakers were tasked with that narrative, the F. Murray Abraham story, that scene would have played out very differently. Yeah. You know, it would have been more successful. Yeah, yeah. We would have actually seen, you know, Lewin's kid, and there would have been some kind of completion of the circle. But it just keeps going, yeah. like you said. Yeah. There's no real homecoming. Yeah, they're very good at uh, using that journey structure. I mean, it's it, it's a pretty hard thing to get us invested in a journey that ultimately is about being stuck where you are. <laughs> you know, that's a tough story to tell, you know. And they end up using the journey to really reinforce the... Uh, the futility essentially of his situation and to do all that without really making a big bummer is really a, a testament to their abilities. Right. And even in intolerable cruelty, there's a form of a happy ending, mm-hmm. you know, you there's like, they might stay together. Who knows? You doubt yes, it, but it's yes. at least a formally, it is a happy ending. Mm-hmm. I don't think Lewin Davis would hit anywhere be, it wouldn't be as powerful as it is if they would have done like, oh, Bob Dylan loves this guy and he's <laughs> going to be the next star, you know? Yeah. Like having just that sadness at the end, just him bleeding on the street corner is like, okay, just, <laughs> they got the point across, you know? Yeah, and yet they still have, they give him that little, one little sort of funny line. He's sort of, the guy who beat him up is driving off and he kind of waves to him and he goes, au revoir. <laughs> you know, they give him like a little like, Oddity. I mean, that's sort of like the inhaler the hitman has. They yeah. just—they're yeah. always giving you just a little sort of something to to get you kind of one little hop out of the gutter. It's a, it's an impressive film, I think. All right. Well, that 
covers Intolerable Cruelty and Inside Lewin Davis. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Frankie, your essay, Till Death Do Us Part, The Vampiric Love of Intolerable Cruelty, is on Split Tooth Media now. And Steve, The Music of Bad Timing. Joel and Ethan Cohen's Inside Lewin Davis is also available now. Thank you guys so much for doing this. It's been a blast bringing this show back. And you know, I look forward to talking with you guys again.